The following sermon is from Lifeway Church of Billings. Continuing our study of 1 Corinthians with a sermon entitled Marriage and Divorce is Pastor Stacy Gaylord. Let me have you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. While you're making your way there, we'll just chat a little bit about a few things. One, for those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Stacy. I'm the senior pastor here. We're an elder-led congregational church. And so what do we do on a Sunday morning? I mean, what is this a picture of? It's a picture of faith when God's people gather gather together. I want you to think about this. What we're saying is we recognize that though the world offers all these idols, all these things that would call us to belong to them and submit to them and worship them and make sacrifices for them, that we reject all the the idols of the world, and we're coming together through Jesus Christ by faith to worship the one true living God. And the only way, the reason that we say through Jesus Christ, the only way that's even possible is that people like you and, and me, you see, we're not okay. Uh, we actually have to be, if we're going to be okay with God, it's going to be because uh, Jesus laid down his life for us. Okay, we, it, something has to happen to address what is fundamentally wrong in each one of us. Now, that's not a hard case to prove, right? All, all you need is a, is a really good track record of, of what you've done. You don't even have to worry about everybody else and to say, if God is good and holy, then I need some help. I'm going to need some forgiveness and grace. And that's exactly what Jesus did whenever he bore sins on the cross so that anybody who believes in him, just totally by grace. It's totally by God's gift. It's totally the, the accomplishment of Jesus. Anybody who believes in Jesus can come to God through him having the righteousness of Jesus. So it's a great privilege that God's people get to come together all on the basis of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And so that's what we do. We, we come together and we worship the one true living God. We also open God's word. And as God's people, we seek to understand it and submit to it. How do we understand what God has to say? And then how do we as God's people encourage one another to submit to God's wisdom, goodness, and authority? And that's what we're going to do in 1 Corinthians 7. Having said that, uh, the topic this morning is divorce. One of the reasons that uh, it's good for me just to pick a book of the Bible and go straight through it because a topic like divorce is probably not something that I would be uh, really comfortable chatting about. And actually, even just picking a book in the Bible, divorce isn't something I'm particularly comfortable chatting about. But let's trust that God in his word uh, has authority and wisdom and has something great to say to us so that, that we can be wiser and better because we, we do that. So let me try to set it up this way. What I'm going to do this morning as we talk about divorce, so I want to talk about three things. The problem we face as a church in our particular setting the arc of the passage that we're going to look at, we're just, it's not a huge passage in, in chapter 7. And so uh, what it does, what Paul does whenever he writes this church about marriage and divorce uh, in their context, because they had a context that was unique to them, yet it's still God's word and we need to apply it to ourselves. And then what action do we take? How do we respond to that? So a, a, a real problem that we face as a church in our setting, let's understand the passage together and then let's talk about um, something of a proposal. What are the actions that we could take out of that? Now, let me, before I get to the problem, 
that we face together as a church. Let me tell you the problem that I face. Okay? No matter what I say, some of you are going to disagree with me. It's okay. That's the nature of a topic like this. I'm not going to sweat it. I hope you don't either. But we do need to handle it with grace, right? And, and uh, being faithful to God's word. And we should agree on the big principles. That's not too complicated. And the vast majority of us will agree on the big principles. But when it comes to the particular application of some of these there's going to be some difference of opinion. That's, that's fine. As a matter of fact, that's part of, in our context, how we can work together well and help each other grow. I'm not done on this topic, right? Um, and so given that, so I'll, I'll give you the obvious one. As, we, as this topic comes up and people bring up the issue of, say, grounds for divorce, and uh, particularly, is it okay to remarry? In a, in a room like this, there are going to be legitimate, principled, differences of opinion. And what we ought to do is we ought to give the benefit of the doubt and say, um, let's do that with some goodwill. Let's not, let's, as we discuss it or we reason together or we mull it over, let's not assign that to a lack of commitment to Jesus. Uh, let's think the best of each other and let's work to apply God's word the very, very best we can. And I need to lead in that. So I need to set a good tone. I'm going to try to do my best, okay? So that's the problem I face is that regardless of what I say, Somebody will say, some bodies will say, hey, but what about this? That's true, and that's okay. You're, you're, you're free on that. Where the Bible is clear, though, none of us ought to say we ought to negotiate with God. Where the Bible is really clear, we ought to say, let's, let's believe that, let's understand what God has said, and let's submit ourselves to it. Now, here's the problem we face. Okay, first thing in your handout. Here's the problem we face. And I call it the ridgeline problem. If you live in this area... At times, you can, you can hike, um, and we have these nice little uh, trails that you can hike up. And some of them, you know, it's not like what the original mountain men maybe uh, did because you've got a trail that's about this wide, and, you know, sometimes they put little stairs in and, and stuff like that. But occasionally, if you push it and you find yourself in a place, you might uh, hike a ridgeline. I remember I was with a friend in Utah one time, and we hiked this ridgeline. He has... No fear of heights, um, because he's insane maybe, I don't know, but he had no fear of heights. But on this ridge line, it was wide enough, but it was the perception of if it was a sheer drop-off on each side, on either side. And so while my friend was like skipping on the rocks across the ridge line, I'm, I'm praying and I'm hugging these rocks, and, and we, get, we peek it, right? So there's this little thing that, that you peek it. And he's standing on a rock that's not totally set in amongst the other rocks, and it's tilting back and forth. And he's looking over the edge, right? He peeked it that way. And he's just seeing what it looks like down there. I'm the guy next to him on my, on my knees holding a rock like this and shaking, right? Just waiting to get down. That was more perception. It was wider than my, than my heart understood. A real ridge line that you can that you can make it across, and we can make it across. I need to get across the ridge line, but there's a sheer drop on, off on either side. And it's easy to fall off, and I, if we fall off on one side, we're going to, number one, break people. Okay, I, um, God's word is for people to receive. God makes himself known so that people can encounter him in his word and receive it. Look, I have friends who have been divorced, and I care a lot about them. 
we have brothers and sisters in our church family, and we love them. And these people are valuable. They mean a lot to Jesus in the way we handle this. That needs to show up in the way we handle it. Look, we're not, we're not doing a Bible class exercise where we're talking about this in the abstract. We're looking people in the eye. And we, we need to make sure we handle this in a way that we take care of the people around us. We, we minister in a setting where a lot of people have gone through uh, divorce. The other side is this. Uh, we, we could fall off the other side and we could lose truth. And we can't do that, right? God, this is God's word and we need to handle it without compromise because he's absolutely wise and good. Do you see what I'm saying? We need to handle it. Here's our problem. We're, we're going across this ridge line and we need to make it to the other side. I need you to come with me. Fall off on one side, we break people. Fall off on another side and we lose truth. What most people tend to do is they try to choose truth or grace. We need to put those two together, okay? And what we can say, we need to say, and where we need to be more humble, we probably ought to be quick to do that. So let's put them together. That's the problem we face. Let's look at God's word now. 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll start in verse 10, and we'll make our way through verse 16, all right? The Apostle Paul writes, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? This is God's word. It's easy, right? Just like I could just read it and like, done, drop the mic. Let's talk about the arc of the passage. And obviously, if you remember part of the the question that set up chapter 7 was whether it was even good to have sexual relations at all. And what features here, it's almost as if they're asking, and it seems they are, look, there are some people wanting to get out of this thing called marriage. There's some people wanting in, there's some people wanting out, and so they're asking, hey, can we get out of it? And from different angles, is it okay if I get a divorce? And so the passage pretty simply breaks into two parts. And in verses 10 and 11, Paul is addressing a situation where a believer is married to another believer. And um, so, like I said, keep in mind their context, right? They're suspicious of sex at all. This comes from culturally from their dualism. And, uh, and if, you, if you look the passage right after this, Paul's main advice to them is this little refrain that keeps coming up through chapter 7. Remain as you are. Seems like everybody wants to change. If they're single, they want to get married. And if they're married, they want to be single. And Paul says, remain as you are. By, by the way, that particular issue is something that has featured throughout history. That doesn't always change much. If I, I run across people all the time, right? They're single, and they wonder what to do about that quote-unquote problem. And people who are married, 
They wonder what to do about that quote-unquote problem, right? And Paul's advice is, look, by and large, remain as you are. But some of them want to marry, and they want to make sure it's okay, and some of them want out of marriage, and they've got a couple of reasons for that. Out of their dualism, for example, they're wondering if sexual relationships are okay at all. Or, well, we'll find another problem in the second part of the passage, they, they wonder if a marriage to an unbeliever is all right. But it's important to keep that in, in mind. Paul, as he's addressing them, isn't addressing this situation. He's addressing his first century Corinth situation. One where they go, we don't know about this marriage thing at all. Okay? We don't know about sexual relations at all. All right, so let's look at the text here. Verses 10 and 11, and I said this is, a mar- this is a believer married to a believer. Now, how do we know that when it's not explicit in verses 10 and 11? Well, the primary way that we know this is whenever you look at the next section, uh, that it's distinguished from this one on the basis that one of the parties isn't a believer. And this one, it looks like Paul, as he writes them, assumes that both parties will heed his message. You see this, regardless of who you are, the wife should not separate from her husband or the husband from his wife. Uh, even if you do, um, you know, shouldn't remarry unless you get together with uh, your spouse there. And so it seems as though both are under the authority of the church and under the authority of the Lord conspicuously. The passage that follows, or the second part of the passage, um, it's distinguished in, in part because it's at least one of the parties or one of the parties is not part of the church. One of the parties is an unbeliever. Now, did you notice the little phrase there in uh, verse 10 where he says, not I, but the Lord? What does he mean by that? He, he means he's just drawn this directly out of the teachings of Jesus himself. He's going to say something later. He's going to say, not the Lord, but I. And all Paul is saying there is, this part I'm giving you, I'm not drawing this directly from the teaching of Jesus. It's still binding and authoritative and wise for us because Paul is an apostle who's empowered and authorized to speak for Jesus. Okay, But that's all he means by that. I'm taking this directly from Jesus' teaching. There's one more little word probably that will help us before we just break down these first two verses. Where he uses the word separate in my translation. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. You see that? Now how do we use that word? We use that word in our culture like, oh well here's a marriage that's troubled but it's not officially dissolved. Right? He doesn't mean it that way. And the, and, the, and the way you can tell it from the context, but just to be clear, he means that a wife shouldn't divorce her husband. So he's, uh, when he talks about it that way, it's synonymous with the word divorce in verse 11. All right. So what do we make of these first two verses? This believer married to a believer. He offers a general rule. And the general rule is remember, like, hey, if the question is, hey, can we get a divorce? Because we don't know about this, uh, this sex thing. And the general rule is, you shouldn't do this, you should stay married. Verse 10, the wife should not separate from her husband. The end of verse 11, the husband should not divorce his wife. Um, you shouldn't do it. Uh, by the way, do you notice here the church equally applying God's word to both genders? Um, But then there is a provision. It's an interesting one. He says, if she does, in other words, even the Apostle Paul recognizes that sometimes you're in a church family and there's somebody who really knows the Bible, knows God's will, uh, can articulate it very well, 
and persuasively, and yet not everybody listens to what you say. You know, it's, it is funny that in leadership, and this is true inside the church and outside the church, what is stunning to most people is a lot of people want to do leadership, but they get frustrated when people don't do what they say. And it's like, well, yeah, that's right. That is the big trick in leadership. Like, see, for example, Moses and the people and the wilderness wandering. There's a really good example of a guy who knows what to do. He just has a bunch of people who, don't, who hate his guts, right? You know, it's, it's harder than you think. So, but Paul... Um, Paul sees this and says, look, there are occasions where somebody's going to do this and they're going to divorce. And what does he say there? Well, look, stay unmarried or get back together with your spouse. It was really clear. He says, if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Also keep in mind here, that could be interesting. There's, there's probably one church in Corinth. I mean, one gathered church in Corinth. So if a couple does, quote unquote, separate, they divorce. They're probably going to be attending church together. There's a good chance that a couple who does it under this scenario is going to agree, yeah, we want to live sort of this monastic, celibate life. And so we'll attend together and that sort of thing. It's like, okay, look, but don't parlay that into finding another spouse. If you're going to do that, fine, but you shouldn't. Um, So let me give you a couple of insights here, what I think. Um. It says something that the church ought to have a place in what a, what a couple does whenever they separate. And what we find an awful lot, if you've worked in a church setting much, is that a lot of times you're called in, let's say, in the ninth inning. You're called in to, to hit a buzzer beater. And instead of maybe earlier on, Paul is telling them what they ought to do as though the church itself, when his letter is done and they've read it, can do ministry that way and follow up and say, look, this is the apostles' teaching. This is God's will. You should stay married. But in a case like this, if you do divorce, um, you should uh, remain unmarried or be reconciled to your spouse. Okay, So that's, that's one section where he's handling a, a specific issue in their context. Very suspicious of sex, don't know if they want to stay in a relationship that's marked off by sex, which is what a marriage relationship is. Uh, It's a significant marker uh, of it. And he says, look, stay married. But if you don't, stay unmarried or be reconciled to your, your spouse. Those are your only two options. All right, let's move to the next section, though. This is a section where in verses 12 through 16, where a believer is married to an unbeliever. And that's clear. And, you know, like I said, this is where Paul says, I, not the Lord. But it's, uh, you know, it's authoritative teaching. Now, in verses 12 through 14, he lays out two different scenarios. One is if they consent. So you're a believer, you're married to an unbeliever, and that unbelieving spouse consents to remain married with you. What should you do then? And then in another situation where that unbelieving spouse doesn't want to remain married. So what do you do then? So he's got two different scenarios. In verses 12 through uh, 14, what if they want to stay married to you? You know, because you're so charming and easy to live with and all that. What are you supposed to do? Well, in verse 12, he gives them the general rule. He says, to the rest, I, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, what should he do? He should not divorce her. 
If any woman, again, applying equally between the genders, has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And then the reason he gives in verse 14, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. I want you to, let's, let's use Jesus as an example. He's always a really good example. One of the shockers with Jesus whenever he went around and did his ministry was when he touched unclean people, right? And that because the concern was that the master would touch them and that if you touch somebody who was unclean, you became, you became defiled. And what we saw through the ministry of Jesus is that the clean, when, when he came in contact with the unclean, he made them clean. In other words, the, the force went the other way. Paul is essentially making an argument like that here. Oh, you may be worried that you're being defiled by your unbelieving spouse. Actually, no, your marriage is legitimate. It's even beautiful. Uh, it's a sacred coming together. It's a covenant. Now, he'll say later when he gives advice to, say, a, a widow or a widower, that if they remarry as a believer, they should marry another believer. He's saying just because you're married to an unbeliever doesn't mean it's not a marriage. It's a good thing. And, and your, your children are legitimate, might have been an old way that we would have said it. All right, so if they want to live with you, live with them. Be married. Cultivate your marriage uh, the way it should be under the, God's design. Verses 15 and 16, he gives the other scenario. What if a believer is married to an unbeliever and they want to separate? They want a divorce. What do you do then? Well, Look at verse 15, and here's the general rule. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So let them go if they demand a divorce. Presumably, in this case, they're demanding a divorce because of your faith. Keep in mind, in their setting, when a couple might get married, that was and was usually the... the husband's prerogative to get to choose the family's religion okay so i don't know if you a lot of you will remember this in in first peter three when paul refers to rights to wives who have unbelieving husbands they are rocking the boat because the husband has a religion and they've decided to follow jesus regardless you see what and so how do you live in that that situation well He's talking about a situation here where there's going to be a rift because they've got really, really different worldviews. And that person may say, I just can't stay married to you anymore. What do you do then? He's not saying that you didn't try to work it out. You didn't do everything you could to make it. He says, you know, look, if you've gotten to that point, let them go. You're not enslaved. You're not bound. God has called you to live in peace. This word is in the same semantic range as a word that we see in verse 39. So just, if you don't mind, uh, poke your eyes to verse, no, poke your eyes. Uh, That's a bad little phrase. Uh, Turn your eyes, move your eyes to uh, verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. That enslaved and bound, they're in the same semantic range. Right? And Paul here is saying, you're not enslaved, you're not bound. Now, now, I think what we could say is there's a contrast between this situation and the one before. The one before, the believer who marries a, uh, a believer, 
and they may have applied those that uh, label differently, a little bit differently than sometimes what we do in an institutional church in, in, in a culture like ours. They can only remarry their spouse. Here, they're not bound. To me, it looks like they're free to marry uh, the way any single believer could. So one conclusion that we can draw, and here's where we get a little bolder in this, okay, is that there are some situations like that where uh, a believer gets divorced and is free to remarry. There are some that are not. And he tells them in verse 16, I think is a comfort. He basically says, you don't know, right? Why would you want to stay married to them? Well, because you love them and you want them to come to know the Lord. Right? If you, if you are, are married and your husband is an unbeliever, your wife is an unbeliever, you want them to know the Lord. But he says, look, if they demand and they go, you, you don't know. He says, wife, how do you know whether you're, you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Right? You would have hoped they would have come to faith. But you don't have any guarantee of that. And um, that reminds me, every marriage is a culture where you, there's influence going both ways. Now, Early on in a marriage, what's interesting about this is a lot of times you're comparing notes about how you both grew up, right? You know, your family did it one way and her family did it another way. And you both are hopefully trying to find nice ways to say you're crazy, but let's bring you over to my side, right? Because my family was normal and your family was super odd. And then you get older and you go like, both of our families were nuts, right? And then you get even older, and you're like, everybody's nuts. I mean, it's amazing that we do this. So, but, what, so, but here's, here's an interesting thing. Uh, um, I've been married 25-plus years, right? So, no, my wife just gave me that I'm so ashamed. Don't you do that. We did the math on this not long ago, and you didn't remember either. So, <laughs> she's trying. I can't believe you did that. We're going to have to chat about this later. So, so anyway, it's like... It's 25-ish years of marriage, right? So here's, here's an interesting thing. We had our different ways of doing things as we were first married. And you have to negotiate, navigate those, and how are we going to do it? Now, after over two, three-ish decades, we'd like, we do everything the same. We're like the same person. I'm sorry about that, but we're like the same person. We like what we get at the grocery store and how we clean stuff and the products that we buy, right? How we, how we manage our money and what we're interested in and all that. There's an influence that goes that way to where we, we look up and we go, there's a lot we assume now. Sometimes if you don't like where the two of you are, you have to say we have to start influencing each other better. Okay, just as a little aside, but there's what Paul is saying here is, yes, you would have hoped that you would have influenced your unbelieving spouse to belief so that they'd be saved. He obviously wants that with them. But they don't. If they demand and they go, you don't know. It's okay. Live in peace and uh, leave them in the hands of God. So that's a basic exposition. Paul is addressing something that's very pastoral. These people are kind of, they're suspicious of marriage, kind of wanting out, some of them. The single folks want in. Some of the married folks want out. And he says, look, if you're a believer married to another believer, this is what you need to do as a general rule. And if you're a believer married to an unbeliever, this is what you need to do as a general rule. So what do we do about that? That's Paul writing to them in their context. How should we apply this word to us in our context? 
Okay? Remember, let's not lose people and let's not lose truth. It's okay if people leave and they reject the truth. That's okay, but let's not break them because we can't handle the truth well. And let's not compromise the truth, all right? Let me give you four things that I think are, you know, the quote-unquote fix. But there, there are four things that we ought to put together in action instead of choosing one thing over the other. Number one, we need to have an admiration for marriage. And I chose that word intentionally. I'm not just saying that we ought to stand for marriage. Like, hey, whenever you vote in 2020, vote for the marriage ticket. I have no idea who that is. Uh, Vote for the marriage ticket. I'm not just saying standing up for it, be political about it. I'm not talking about a culture war. I'm talking about our culture. What is it? Lifeway Church How do we talk about marriage? How do we see marriage? How do you see marriage in your own setting? Do you see it? Do you admire it deeply enough to act? See what I'm saying? Not not just that you check a four box, but that you admire it when it's going well, that you see it as something sacred and worth protecting. What is one thing that you could do that would best embody this? If you were going to take one action for marriage, what would you do? Would, would it be something in your own marriage where you need to take a step closer to your spouse? I mean, look, there are people that they, they figure out how to live together in a state of hard-headedness. So they're not going to get a divorce, but they're just not going to like each other for until death doesn't part, right? Do you, need, do you need to break down those walls and come closer together? Do you need to be more understanding and supportive of your spouse in your own marriage? What about being supportive in another marriage? But it, I'll give you a scenario. What if you've gone through divorce and it was really you made a huge mistake? And somebody else you see tempted the same way, would you be willing if you had passport to say, hey, look, I'm going to encourage you to rethink this. I've been down that road and I don't think it's worth it. What about, it's, I mean, some people, one of the best ways that they ought to support this, show an admiration for marriage, is to get married. You know, rather than um, being in a situation where you're looking and you're, you're keeping your sexual options open. To say, no, sex is a good thing created by God, but it's intended um, to be shared between a husband and wife, and I need to respond by making sure I get married. All right, an admiration for marriage. Not a support for, not an argument against all the other bad things out there, but actually a culture that really lifts up marriage. And that's what we ought to have here at Lifeway. Number two, a principled submission to the church. Listen, many who have gone through a divorce, when it comes to the church, what they've done is either completely separated the issue from the church, like it's not the church's business at all. Paul writes here in such a way that he thinks that the church ought to weigh in in the right way. Okay? Uh, I've, I've been through this where people use the church simply as a tool for their own agenda. Right? I want a divorce and I want you as my pastor to tell me, that Jesus is good with this, or um, I don't want a divorce, and I, I want you to go catch my spouse and uh, argue with them and that sort of thing. And I, Listen, th- these are tricky, tough things, but let me just suggest to you, remember I talked about our culture of marriage here? If you want the church to be okay with what you do, make the church more involved when and even before a crisis occurs. In other words, if you're so right 
about your position, you could be transparent, and you could do it early on. I said it's a principled submission, right? It's submission because you recognize that the church has a place. This church family, if you're a part of it and you're, you're struggling in your marriage, the people here and the leadership here has a legitimate place to influence your marriage. And uh, you, we ought to want that. We ought to want biblical wisdom. And we ought to want it at the most critical times. So we ought, to, we ought to do more in situations like that to invite the church in, going, I know the people here are on my side. I know they want what's best, and I know they're going to see that through the lens of God's will for me. Okay? It's also principled, because the church, just like any organization, can become corrupt. And I'd never suggest that you follow somebody just because they have the title of a church leader without showing the biblical basis for what they ought to do. This is a great story, and the Reformation kicks off, and uh, Martin Luther is at the Diet of Worms, and he's called to account and asked to recount or recant all of his writings where he, he clarifies the gospel and, and uh, the authority of God's word. And they ask him if he'll recant, and he says he can't, and he really gives two, two reasons. One, God's word is clear and his conscience is clear. And he says to act against God's word or conscience, conscience is neither safe nor right. And you shouldn't do that either, right? But let's assume that a, that a church loves you and is uh, showing you what to do and helping guide you through Scripture. You ought to want that, and you ought to want it at the most critical times, okay? So a principled submission to the church, having the church be more involved. Number three, uh, third action. Uh, we need an honesty about what divorce does. But to talk about it sometimes more and in the right way. Look, here's the truth. Divorce represents a breakdown of God's design. It was God's idea to put two people together and that there would be a primary family unit that would come up out of that uh, where there would be this mutually uh, empowering, great culture for connecting and bringing up a family. And while there are certainly cases where divorce is permitted, it's not something that God generally likes. Malachi, I, the Lord, hate divorce, right? Oh, well, now Why? Listen, divorce comes with painful consequences. No one embarks on marriage in hopes of disappointment. I've never seen that. I've performed lots of weddings, and I've never seen somebody walk down the aisle and go, you know what, this is going to be devastating in about 18 months, right? I mean, there's, they're just like, this is going to be awesome. Um, it's like they're the only ones who don't know their spouse, you know. It's uh, uh, how tricky marriage can be and stuff like that. Bad joke, but listen, if we're going to be honest about it, we ought to say this. Divorce disadvantages children. And that ought to mean something. It means something to me and my own experience. Um, and I think my folks would be okay with this. They had some tough patches, but my brother and I were the primary reason at certain stages that they stayed together. They're still together. And I'm glad they did. And I'm, I'm glad they paid the price for it. Right? My life was better because they made the sacrifice to stay in that situation. Divorce, generally speaking, disadvantages children, and it leaves marks on people, it leaves marks on spouses, regardless of the who's to blame scenario that uh, often comes up. And obviously, sometimes divorce is used too much as an easy out, where, where you get into the tough patches of a relationship, and everybody has their doubts, and everybody has their times of difficulty, and it comes into everybody's mind sooner or later, 
whew, this is kind of complicated. I wonder what it would be like to be unencumbered. Right. And then get over it and get back to work. So, so long as you can, so far as you can. Okay? In the church, we have to be honest. Divorce comes with consequences. Now, number four. Uh, we also need the grace to clearly say not bound where appropriate. The church doesn't have any second-class members. Right? Every, every person here is a sinner saved by grace. Every member here who's a believer is clothed in the righteousness Jesus has earned for him or her. And um, that includes people who have been through divorce. Now, here's where, so I'm looking at the clock, easily the most uh, difficult, sensitive issue to talk about here is the, the tension over grounds for divorce and the potential for remarriage. And it's fair to think that through. I even think it's fair that we could look at each other, and I've got, I've got friends who see this issue a little bit differently than I do, and I've got some friends who see this issue quite a bit differently, not on the main stuff that you would agree on, believing in the Bible. Um, I, mean, I, I, I think that's fair. And like I said, I'm still open to think it through and uh, to be influenced but by people who will hear the other side, right? Um, but here's what we ought to be able to say in that, in general, marriages should last, so work on yours. And there are times that a lot of people act like they have grounds when they don't, and there are times when people sh should see it through and they don't. And over the, over the years, I've had some really tough conversations as a pastor where somebody has gone, I think I ought to be able to get out of my marriage, and I tell them, like, no, I don't think you can. I mean, that's between you and the Lord, but, I mean, if you're just asking, if, if I think that Jesus has given you the two big thumbs up, I think, you know, I think you're just seeing this in a one-sided way. I've had those conversations. But there are also situations where someone can get a divorce, and I think that person isn't bound. And I understand that there are reasonable arguments that disagree with that. I, there, and some of those are in the minority. I think that's good because I don't think... They answer every question that comes up in the Bible, but I also think that the Bible is so efficient on this that we ought to be humble as we interact with each other, that we ought to be slower and a lot, a lot more careful to encourage each other in our marriages, encourage single people um, to find contentment in the Lord and to marry well and wisely and that sort of thing. Be super slow uh, on the divorce thing at all. But having said that, let me give you a clearer case and then another case. Okay, so just bear with me on this. A clear case to me seems like adultery. Jesus says so, and this makes sense because marriage is this one flesh covenant relationship and in which sex is a primary thing that sets it off against all other kinds of relationships. All right, that's, I mean, just to be blunt, but to be, like, accurate, what's the difference between your marriage relationship and all these other relationships? Can you think of anything? Well, I can. That's a, that's a family-creating union. It's a covenant relationship in which there may be other features to it, but one of them is that you have sex with this person and not with anybody else. And so when somebody's in breach of that covenant, one-flesh relationship, that seems like a basis um, to separate. And Jesus even sees, uh, says so. Now look, just for sake of clarification, there are people who say, my spouse committed adultery 20 years ago, and I've got grounds to divorce whenever I want. No, you don't. Okay, you don't get to keep grounds in, per, in uh, perpetuity, right? You either, you either deal with it, and maybe you've got a basis then, 
Um, but once you reconcile, then you're in the same spot you were in before. But let me give you another case. Let's say that there's a situation, and this happens, it's not, this happens everywhere, right? It's just part of the demographic of, of fallen humanity. Another case where there's ongoing violent physical abuse. Uh, one party, let's just, because it's, generally it's, it's the male. Let, let's say there's, there's a guy, and it's ongoing, it's violent, it's physical abuse. Are there grounds in this? Now, I choose this because we're kind of asking the question, are there any grounds in any situation? We could say that that's not cited in Scripture. I think I, I think I understand why that's not in some cases. Right? For example, in Jesus' situation, that's a Jewish context. Uh, women didn't have a legal right. They didn't have legal standing. Uh, the corn situation is a little different. But... Uh, Here's a situation that in churches is often not mentioned publicly, but it's accepted privately. Can you get a divorce in this situation? When we list grounds publicly behind a pulpit like this, we'll say adultery, maybe abandonment coming out of 1 Corinthians 7, and then we'll extrapolate something, but we may not mention this uh, publicly. But we tend to accept it privately. One of the things that I would say is, if a church comes down with an official position, and we don't We've got that in our Membership Matters class, and they're, they're pretty general, but easily follow Scripture in that. It needs to be something that you would be willing not to just wage in a conversation in a Bible class, but that you would look somebody in the eye and say, the Lord does not release you. You need to be willing to do that and have that kind of conversation where you look somebody you love in the eye and say Scripture clearly uh, hold you here. Now listen, if it's your conscience, that's fine, but you might need to be slower to bind somebody else to your conscience. Make sure you start with the clear in Scripture and work out from there. Now I think you can make it the case, and like I said, I want to say this really, really humbly, that this constitutes grounds for divorce because it's a breach of that one flesh covenant, and I've been personally willing to do that. But you do have to base this on the principle of the teaching that we find in Scripture. What I'm suggesting is that every case matters and that every case is hard and that we ought to work hard in every case. And there are situations where we ought to be able to tell somebody, you're not bound. Um, and, and I think that's the, I think in the semantic range when Paul says it at the end of this passage, it's, he's saying the same thing that he says to a widow or a widower in verse 39. So let me close with this, okay? So I get on something like that. I chose the extreme example, and I did it on purpose. I did it to say, is there anything that's not clearly cited in Scripture that we might say that looks like grounds for divorce? And like I said, I want to be humble on that, but I also want to be transparent and tell you, hey, look, whenever I'm in a room with somebody and we're chatting about stuff like that, this is a framework that I come from. I'm open to being better. Um, um, but And I'm... It turns out that, that life in a messy world are pretty inconvenient to neat categories. And so we have to work real hard uh, to apply those. But let me close with this. And so, like, like I said, I get that we might disagree on some secondary things. I get that a lot of you would totally agree with what I said. That's not even my main thing. My main thing is to say, let's admire marriage and let's slow divorce. And let's, in a situation where, let's say there was abuse, what, how should the church respond? Should we act like we have no say? No, it's, an, it's actually important that the church is more involved. We ought to release her and protect her in a situation like that.
We live in a messy world. People come to Christ out of that messy world. That's what happened in Corinth, right? That's how a believer is married to an unbeliever. Or they get tripped up by some weird philosophy and they don't know how it impacts their marriage and that sort of thing. We want these folks in the church and we need them in the church because the mess is going to continue. We need redeemed people who have been changed by Jesus and loved by Jesus, who are loyal to Jesus, to do good ministry here. People who have been through divorce. And people will say, they'll have the courage and the grace to look at somebody who's considering divorce and say, I wish somebody had stopped me. I wish somebody had helped me rethink this because I shouldn't have done it. Or somebody to be bold enough to say, we're friends and you're being selfish here and you should get over yourself and you shouldn't do this. Or even some of those cases where you say, look, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help protect you. Okay? So in summary, it's like this. It's not either or. We ought to value and protect and honor marriage in every appropriate way we can. And we need committed believers who have been through divorce to have a big place in our church family. And why we need to do this? We need to do this because truth and or people will suffer if we don't. And we can't have that on our watch. Okay, so it's a call to admire marriage, love your own, help other people in theirs, and let the gospel inform where we go from there. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, the gospel. Thank you for what Jesus did for us. We thank you that out of the mess of human relationships um, that we can see peace and reconciliation and order and contentment. And we pray for the marriages and the soon-to-be marriages in this room, that you would strengthen them. We pray for people who have gone through divorce where sometimes they need to own up to stuff. We pray that you would bring that to mind and that if there's any case of repentance that there would, that's needed, that they would do that, that they would call sin, sin, and not run from it. We also pray for people who have struggled through it or thought about it and been wounded by divorce, that they'd have no greater encouragement and that they've got a Father who loves them, and they've got a Savior who laid down his life for them, and that whenever you see them, you don't see divorced. You see the righteousness of Jesus. You see your child. And so to that end, may your people live confidently and loyally to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The preceding has been a teaching of LifeWay Church of Billings. 